0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, you turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Acts 25, it is so good to be back uh, with you today after being away the past couple of weeks, and really it's just good to, to be back home after such a long trip. Uh, My wife, Megan, and I were talking about it. We think that is the longest trip we have ever undertaken uh, with our four boys. We were gone for 13 days. We went through 10 different states on our journey uh, up to Ohio, back through North Carolina and back and did it all in our minivan. And every parent here knows... You know, you know the smell, you know the noise, the volume and it's good to be back and you know when we when we travel with with our four boys, when we get out of the van and we go into like a restaurant or a store you know, people people kind of look at us a little bit like we're crazy, and and I know it's not that many kids. I mean, we have families in our church with six, seven, eight kids, but but even with four kids, people look at us. And we can kind of see them counting, and they're like, "Those are all yours." And then and then they, sometimes they even say, "Wow, all boys!" God bless you. Yeah, you know, I mean, we get we get that very often. And uh, you know, when a store owner sees us sees us come in, they're kind of looking at us like something is about to get broken in my store. I know <laughs> that that's what it's going to take place. But uh, but we made. I, I don't think anything uh, was broken by our boys on, on this trip that, that I know of. We did have one thing that got broken, though. My little son, Titus, my seven-year-old, little Tito, was climbing a tree, and the tree won, and the ground won. And so he got a broken arm on our journey. But he's kind of excited about it. You can kind of see that in that picture. He is, he is loving that. He said, Dad, the doctor said that my arm is going to stink. And that's awesome. I can't wait for it to stink. And like, <laughs> All right, well, but, uh, but we're home, you know, if that's the only casualty that uh, we had on our trip, we feel, we feel uh, like we did pretty good. But uh, again, that's just a little bit about, about our trip with our four awesome boys, but, but a little bit crazy boys. And, and uh, we're going to think about that word crazy today because in this story, the Apostle Paul gets called crazy. And right after that part of the story that was just read for us, when he finished telling his story. When he finished talking about Jesus and about how Jesus rose from the dead, the Roman governor Festus responded to him, and you can see it in Acts 26, verse 24, Festus, it says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad he said, Paul, you have lost it. You spent too much time in the books and you are now a nut job. That's how Festus felt. And he felt that way because as a Roman, particularly as a Roman official, believing that somebody could rise again from the dead as Paul claimed Jesus had was just not something that in his mind a sane, rational person could believe. And so he calls him crazy. But as the title of our message says today, it's okay to be crazy so long as we are crazy for Christ. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about that. He says to them, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. In church, we have the same mission that Paul had, don't we? To share the good news of Jesus, every opportunity that we get. And so let's do that. Let's keep on sharing, even if it causes some people to call us crazy or think we're crazy again, so long as we're crazy for Christ. And we have a lot of ground to cover in this passage today. We're going to have to move quickly, but I want us to look today At the way Paul shares with Festus and King Agrippa, and along the way, there's at least three lessons I believe we can learn from this one that Festus called Crazy Paul. And here's the first lesson we can learn. He teaches us how to tell your story of meeting Jesus. To tell your story of meeting Jesus every opportunity that you get. That's definitely what Paul models for us here. He takes this opportunity that's given to him and this kind of quasi-hearing and he, he uses it. He seizes that opportunity to tell, once again, how he personally met the Lord and how the Lord changed his life. Now, those verses that were read for us in chapter 25 more or less just kind of set the stage for Paul sharing his story in chapter 26. Paul had been held as a prisoner now for over two years in the city of Caesarea. The former Roman governor, Felix, even though he knew that Paul was innocent, never released him. He was hoping somebody would give him a bribe, but that never happened. And then even when he was removed from his office, he still didn't set Paul free because he wanted to do the Jewish religious leaders a favor, so he left Paul in custody. And then the next Roman governor came and took his place, a man named Porcius Festus, A couple of weeks ago we learned about how he also put Paul on trial but he says the charges that were laid against Paul weren't what he expected it really wasn't anything to do with Roman law he really wasn't guilty of anything as far as he could tell it really was just a disagreement about Jewish theology And so, but again, as a favor to the Jews, he didn't let Paul go either. In fact, he asked Paul if he was willing to go to Jerusalem and go through another trial in Jerusalem. And so finally, after two years, Paul exercises his right as a Roman citizen to make his appeal directly to the Roman emperor, to Caesar. And in verse 12, Festus gives that famous reply, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you shall go. And really that sets the course for the entire rest of the book of Acts. We're going to see that next week. Paul gets put onto a ship and he begins a long and harrowing journey to the city of Rome. And we'll talk about that story again next week. But in God's providence, Paul is given one more opportunity in the city of Caesarea to tell his story. And that opportunity comes because of some royal visitors who come to visit The governor Festus. Those visitors are introduced for us in the first verse of our text, verse 13. King Herod Agrippa II and Bernice. And what a pair uh, these two were. Uh, King Agrippa II is the last of the Herod family to show up in the Bible. And he is about as peachy of a guy as all of his ancestors were. His great grandfather, Herod the Great, was the one who you might recall tried to kill the baby Jesus and killed all of those infants in and around the city of Bethlehem. His grand uncle, Herod Antipas, is the Herod that we read about in the four gospel accounts. He's the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, then there is his father Herod Agrippa the first, who is the one who uh, killed the disciple James and imprisoned the disciple Peter. He's the one who also got eaten by worms back in Acts chapter twelve because he would not give the glory that belonged to God alone. So this is this man's family. Because he was a Herod, though, he was given a responsibility to rule over several territories. In fact, he was even allowed to preside over the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem and to help pick the next high priest when that time came. Now, the woman that he brought along with him, this young woman, Bernice, was actually his sister, And I won't go into too much detail, but the rumor all around the Roman Empire was that they were behaving more like husband and wife than they were like brother and sister. This was after, by the way, she had married her own uncle. And so, you know, yikes, that's about all I can say there. But they they came to Caesarea, they come to visit Festus. Festus is actually glad that they've come. And he's glad because despite the lack of morality in Herod Agrippa's personal life, he was considered an expert when it came to Jewish people and to the Jewish religion. And so Festus thinks, you know, maybe Agrippa can help me with this little problem I have with this prisoner, Paul. And so he begins to tell him about the case and fill him in. And it's at this point that you cannot miss the parallels between the trial of the apostle Paul and the trial of the Lord Jesus that preceded it. Because in both of these trials, you have a Roman governor and a Jewish king who are consulting together and working together. In the case of Jesus, it was Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas, now it is Festus and this Herod Agrippa II who are becoming chummy as they work together on Paul's case. So the parallels are so clear but again, starting in verse, verse 14, he fills Agrippa in. He says, Festus left me this, or excuse me, Felix left me this prisoner uh, when he left office. Uh, this man, Paul, I put him on trial. I can't see that he's done anything illegal, but he's asking for help from Festus to help understand what was going on. You know, just as an aside, though, I love the way that, that he describes the difference between what Paul believed and what his Jewish opponents believed there in verse 19 of chapter 25. He says, They had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Well, that, that is the crux of the matter, isn't it? Right? Jesus, Paul believed Jesus is alive. I believe that Jesus is alive. Every Christ follower in this room believes that Jesus is alive. That is at the heart of the matter. Well, Festus eventually tells Agrippa how Paul had appealed to Caesar and how he was keeping him until he could arrange a ship to transport him to Rome. And King Agrippa says, well, I would like to hear him personally. I'd like to hear him myself. And Festus says, well, how about tomorrow? And so the next day comes, verse 23 describes the scene for us. It says, so the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. This hearing was probably held in a large meeting room inside of the Herodian palace there in Caesarea. It says that they came with great pomp. You can imagine that, that Festus and Bernice and, uh, and uh, Agrippa as well were all wearing their royal attire. And, and so here they are coming in with all of this pomp. And then imagine the contrast as they go and they bring the Apostle Paul in. A prisoner probably wearing nothing more than a simple plain robe as he stood before them and they looked at him and viewed him as a worthless prisoner and they viewed themselves of course as being so important so regal and yet history has all but forgotten about Agrippa and Bernice and Festus but Paul's words are still being read every single day all around the world And the Christ that Paul preached about is being worshipped in every nation as he is this day in this place. In verse 24 through 27, Festus sets the stage for the proceedings. He explains it really is not a formal trial. In fact, they no longer had the authority to put Paul through a trial because he had made his appeal to Caesar and was on his way there. Really, this is more of an informal inquiry. And Festus says that the reason for the inquiry is that when he sent Paul to Rome, he had to send a letter along with Paul that explained what the charges were against this prisoner. And he said, right now, I don't think there are any charges. I don't know what to write. And so he is hoping that as Agrippa listens to Paul speak, that Agrippa might be able to make sense of things and might be able to help him write a coherent letter that he will send to the emperor Nero in Rome. And so with that introduction in verse 1 of 26 of chapter 26 Agrippa then invites Paul to take the mic as it were and to say what he wants to say in his own defense. But you know, really, as you read Paul's speech, this is not actually a defense. At least it's not a defense in any legal sense of the word. He's not trying to get out of any charges. He's not trying to, to negotiate a deal with anyone. He knows that it's God's plan for him to go to Rome. He knows he's going to stand trial there. So again, he's really not making a defense. What you realize the longer that you read Paul's speech here is that what he's actually doing is sharing the gospel. His intention, his goal, is that there would be some in this room listening to him who would put their faith in Jesus, particularly his audience is King Agrippa, the Jewish king. And by the end of this message, he's going to invite Agrippa to bow his knee to King Jesus and put his faith in the Lord. Particularly in verses 4 through 23, Paul shares his personal story of how he met Jesus And there is so much to learn from this, because if you're in this room right now and you know Jesus in a personal way, you have a story like this. And your story of meeting Jesus is one of the most powerful tools that you have when you seek to share about the Lord with someone else. And that's especially true in our culture today because in our culture today, people will argue with you and they will argue with me about almost any statement or any claim or assertion that you make. But in our culture today, it's really kind of taboo to argue with someone about their own story, right? Your story is your story. And so we're able to share our story of what God has done in our life and God can use it to help others To meet the Lord. You know, next month in August, we're going to have a summit here, a disciple making summit. There's information in the bulletin today about that event. And that morning in August, we're going to talk more about this how to use your story as a way to share the gospel. But for today, I just want us to see this very quickly. There are three main parts of Paul's story, and there are three main parts of our stories as well. First off, when you're sharing your story, tell what it was like before you met Jesus. Tell what it was like before you met Jesus. That's what Paul does starting in verse four. He starts out by explaining to King Agrippa that he was a Jew through and through, that he had grown up as a very strict religious Jew. In fact, he was a member of of the strictest of, of sects and groups within Judaism, that he was in fact a Pharisee. One thing that he's doing as he shares that is he's trying to build some common ground with the king about the fact that he grew up with a hope in his heart about the resurrection that came from the scriptures. A hope that Paul believed every Jewish person should have in his heart. And by the end of this, he wants to convince King Agrippa that that hope, that that promise from the Old Testament has been fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other thing he's doing, though, By starting out and describing how religious he was, he's making the point that even though he was religious, he was at that time spiritually lost. In fact, in verses 9 through 11, he describes how anti-Christian he actually was. In fact, I would say that the Apostle Paul very well may have been the most anti-Christian person on the planet at that time, without exaggeration. He was so against Christ, so against the followers of Christ that he would actually cast his vote and lend his support when they were being martyred for their faith. The story of Stephen that we read about earlier in the book of Acts comes to mind. He was so against these Christians that he would even hunt them down in other cities and arrest them and bring them back so that they could face charges. That's how against Christ and his followers he was. He thought that they were blaspheming to say that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he tried to get them to not say that. He tried to get them to deny the Lord Jesus. He did not believe in Christ at all. That's the point. And he acted like it. And you know, maybe there are some here who have a similar testimony to that. Now, I'm not saying that you've hunted down Christians in your life, but perhaps you would say, you know what, my story is that before I met Christ, I was pretty opposed to church. I was pretty opposed to Christians. I kind of viewed Christians as being, you know, phony hypocrites. I didn't really want anything to do with them. I didn't really believe in the Bible at all. Uh, That's kind of, that was my posture. That's kind of the way I thought before I met the Lord. And you know what? If that is your story, share that. Because there are many others in the world, many of our friends who honestly right now feel the same way. They can be challenged by your story of how God has worked in your heart and brought you from that place where you were opposed to the things of God to now where you follow him and believe in him. You know, whatever your story is, though, even if you grew up in church, uh, in a Christian family, there was always, for every one of us, there was a time in our life when we were lost. There was a time in our life before we met Jesus in a personal way, and we need to share that part of our story. But we also need to share this, like Paul does here. We need to share how we met Jesus. Paul shares that part of his story in verses 12 through 18. This is now the third time, by the way, in the book of Acts that we have read Paul's story. It is the most well-known conversion or salvation story that there is. It's the story of how Paul, who again was totally opposed to Christ, was on his way to the city of Damascus to arrest some more Christians, and while he was on his way doing that, how Jesus met him on that road to Damascus, knocked him off of his horse, spoke to him, and turned his life completely around. You know, this version of Paul's story is the only one where we find that line at the end of verse 14, where Jesus said to him, Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that was a well-known proverb of that time. It was uh, used to describe the way an animal would be goaded or prodded along by its master using some sticks. And it's a description of how foolish it is for that animal to try to to kick away at that prodding because the only thing that's going to get them is more prodding, right? It's going to get them more goading. It's going to get them harder goading. And that's what Jesus is saying to Paul. He's saying, Paul, it's hard for you, isn't it, to fight against God? And you've been fighting against God's will and what God is doing and what I am doing all of this time. You are persecuting me. And it's time for you to stop fighting against God. It is time for you to surrender to God. And of course, on that road to Damascus, Paul did surrender and his life would never be the same after that encounter. And Christian, what about you? Do you remember the day that you met Jesus? I don't know how long ago it was for you maybe it was a few weeks ago maybe it was 50 years ago or somewhere in between do you remember that day how did that come about in your life who it was it that shared with you about the lord what brought you to a place where you realized that you needed to surrender your life to the lord where you realized you needed a savior how did that come about. That's an important part of of your testimony that needs to be shared. Now when you look at, at Paul's story, I'm sure there are some in here who would say, well Pastor, you know, in my story, I don't have, you know, like a super cool road to Damascus, blinding light, kind of a testimony where my life was radically turned around because, you know, I became a Christian when I was like seven years old. I mean I grew up in church. I remember VBS songs from when I was four, right? And so and honestly that's my story too. And so maybe you've wondered, like, like I have wondered over the years, you know, how can God use a story like mine, a story that kind of seems plain, kind of seems vanilla, how can God use that to impact somebody's life? But here's what I want to share with you. The reality is, if God saved you at an early age, he kept you from a life of sin, a life of destruction that you and I would certainly have walked down were it not for the grace of God. And that is a powerful story of what God has done in our life. You know, when I tell my story, one thing that I always emphasize is how I thought as a child that just by attending church, I was automatically a Christian. You know, because my parents brought me to church every Sunday because we came here and I listened to the pastor preach that that meant I was a Christian. And I came to a point where I realized that wasn't the case. That, that coming to church didn't any more make me a Christian than sitting down on a garage floor turned me into an automobile. And I, and I share that because there's a lot of others who can relate to that, who maybe attended church some when they were young, maybe have attended church off and on, maybe would say, you know, if they had to check a box, I would check the box Christian, but yet they realize, you know what, I've never actually had a personal encounter with Jesus. I've never actually surrendered my life to him. I've never actually received him into my life. I don't walk with him. I don't talk with him. And so just sharing that part of the story can help people to realize there's a difference between going to church and actually knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. We need to share what our life was like before we met Jesus. We need to share how we met Jesus, but then like Paul does here, we also need to tell, this is so important, what your life is like now that you do know Jesus. Paul talks about that starting in verse 19, and he really keeps the focus on the new mission that he had in his life after he met the Lord. Jesus had told Paul, just like he has told all of us, by the way, that we are his ambassadors that we are to go and share his good news with everyone that we meet. And Paul tells Agrippa here, that's exactly what I've been doing. I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. In fact, from day one, I got about it and I started sharing in Damascus and Jerusalem and all over the world about Jesus. I love what Paul says though in verse 22 about that. In chapter 26, verse 22, he says, therefore having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great. Notice those words, help from God. We need to make sure that when we share our story of our life now that we have met Christ, that we don't rob the glory that belongs to God alone. We need to make sure that we don't give the impression, well, you know, now, you know, I have turned my life around. Now I've really got things going because of what I have done, because that's not the truth. We haven't turned our life around. God has turned our life around. And we need to give glory to God. Anything that we have done has been because of his grace and his power and his strength at work in us. We are who we are because of the grace of God. But friend, I want to encourage you to think about your story. Since the day that you met Jesus, what has changed in your life? How have your affections changed? How have your priorities changed? change? What has God done in your family since you met Jesus? How has God given you a hope that you did not have before? How has God given you a new mission, a new purpose for your life that you didn't have before? You know, it should be easy to think of ways that our life has changed because when we meet Jesus, he changes everything in every area of our hearts and our lives. You know, I want to encourage you, if you've never done this exercise, just to Maybe even this afternoon, take out a sheet of paper and just write down your story. And write it down briefly, succinctly, so maybe two minutes or less. You could, you could share that story in a conversation with someone about what God has done in your life. And you can use the same three headings that we just went through. At the top of that paper, write about what my life was like before I met Christ. And then write about how I met Christ. And then lastly, write about what your life has been like since you've met Christ. A very simple way to think through the story of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And again, it is a powerful way that God has given us to just tell our story and allow him to use that to change the hearts and lives of others. That's the first lesson we need to learn from Paul. We need to learn to tell our story. But also, as we're telling our story, we also need to make sure we tell the story of Jesus That is what Paul does here. He doesn't just tell his story. He tells the story of Jesus, what Jesus Christ has done for us so that everyone listening to him knows that their life can be changed too because of what the Lord has done for them. First off, we need to tell folks what the good news is, what the good news is. And you know, in one word, the good news is Jesus. And as you read over Paul's story here, you'll notice that his story is really more about Jesus than it is about himself. Now look at verses 22 and 23 in particular. This is where Paul says, this is what I said in my ministry. Verse 22, therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. Verse 23, that the Christ Jesus would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. The good news is Jesus. The good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, has come. That he, as Paul said, he suffered. He went to the cross and suffered and died in our place to pay for our sins. That he rose again on the third day. And because he did, and because he lives even now, he is the light of the world. He can bring light to anyone who believes in him. That is what the good news is. We also need to share what the good news does. We need to explain when a person puts their faith in that good news, what happens inside of their heart, what happens inside of their soul. And I think the best description of that is in verse 18, the words that Jesus himself spoke to Paul. And he said, Paul, when you go out and you tell people about me, here's what's going to happen inside of their heart. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So according to Jesus, when someone puts their faith in him, they move from darkness spiritually to the light. According to Jesus, when someone puts their faith in him, they move from being held in the grip of Satan and they move to being held by the power of God. According to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, look at what it says. They may receive forgiveness of their sins. Friend, don't ever get over that. That because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can be forgiven. Everything we've ever said or done or thought that is wrong, that is against the word of God, or everything we ever will do that is wrong has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ when he died in our place. That's why we call it good news, isn't it, church? And then, if is, if that wasn't enough, They also receive, according to Jesus, an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That inheritance that we receive is the inheritance of eternal glory and eternal life spent with the King of glory. That is what the good news does, and we need to share that. But we also need to share how the good news is received How is it that someone can hear about Jesus, hear what he did at the cross, hear how he rose again? How can they respond to it? How can they receive all of those benefits that we just talked about, the forgiveness of sins and all the rest? Well, it says at the very end of verse 18 how that happens. Those who are sanctified by faith. The Bible is very clear that we are not saved by our own works. The truth of the matter is we cannot be good enough to be saved on our own because we are sinners who are separated from a holy, perfect, righteous God. That's why Jesus had to come. And so we're not saved by trying to be good enough. We're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus who is good enough. Now in verse 20, he does talk about repentance Because that's the flip side of saving faith. If we really have saving faith in the Lord, then there is going to be a change in our heart. There is going to be a turning from sin and a turning to God. We are going to do, as it says here, works that befit repentance. That's the same language John the Baptist used in Matthew chapter 3. In other words, the lifestyle that we live will look different if we have real saving faith in the Lord. Because again, he will change our heart. Give us new desires, new affections to live our life for him. But we receive the forgiveness of sin. We receive salvation by faith and faith alone. You remember when the jailer in the city of Philippi earlier in Acts asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Maybe that's the question some of you are asking today. What must I do to be saved? Remember what Paul and Silas said back? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved saved. So we need to share how the good news is received. It's received by faith. The other thing we need to remember as well, we need to remember who the good news is for, and it's for everybody. Verse 17, Paul says, Jesus sent him to the Jews and to the Gentiles. In other words, it didn't matter what culture someone was from, the gospel was for them all. In verse 22, Paul says, he witnessed to people both small and great. In other words, it didn't matter whether he was speaking to a King Agrippa or to a Festus or if he was speaking to a jailer, he was speaking to a slave girl or somebody on the side of the road. It doesn't matter what your social standing is because every person needs the same message. Every person needs the same Savior. We all need Jesus. It's important for us to remember that we will never meet a single person in our lives that does not need Jesus. This good news is for everyone. Everyone so far, we've seen two of the lessons we need to learn from Paul, how to tell our story and how to tell the story of Jesus. There's one more lesson to learn, and we're going to see it in the last few verses of our passage for today. Look at verse 24. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. (laughs) Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might've been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Here's the last lesson. Lesson number three, we can learn from Paul. Just like Paul does here, we have got to invite people to respond personally to Jesus admittedly the reactions that Paul gets here are not super fantastic, right? The first response that he gets, we've already talked about, Festus, the Roman governor, uh, basically just blurts out and interrupts Paul and says, you are crazy. You have lost your mind. That's, that's never good, right? When a preacher's in the middle of a sermon and someone stands up and says you're crazy, that's not what you're kind of looking for. That's what happens to Paul. And, and you know, in our culture, we, we use that term crazy. Sometimes we'll talk about somebody being crazy for something that they're just really into, right? You know, we'll say, well, so-and-so, I mean, he is like, he's crazy about Florida Gators football, which, I mean, I think you're crazy if you like Florida, as a Florida State fan, just at all, just put that out there. But, but you know, we might say, well, you're crazy, right, Pastor Doug, crazy into, into a certain sports team. We might say, you know, that person's crazy about that restaurant, or they're crazy about this movie, they're crazy about a, a TV show. Maybe some of y'all remember that really old commercial uh, about being crazy for Cocoa Puffs, right? Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I mean, remember that, right? But, But when we talk about being crazy, let's make sure that we're not known as someone who's crazy for a breakfast cereal. We're not known as being crazy for a sports team. We're not known as being crazy for a movie, but we're known as being crazy for Christ. That what people know about us is they know that we're passionate about the Lord. We're passionate about sharing him with everyone that we meet. That there's nothing in our life that we love more than we love Jesus. Well, Paul doesn't let what Festus says throw him off in the slightest. He responds respectfully in verse 25. He says, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. And then he starts to turn his attention back to the Jewish king, King Agrippa, who is really his primary audience. And he says, I know the king knows what I'm talking about. I know that he's aware of everything that I've been saying because what I've been talking about has not been done in some hideaway corner, hadn't been done in some dark alley. Everybody in Israel knows the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody in Israel knows how the Romans crucified him. Everybody knows that the Christians say that he is risen from the dead. I know that you've heard about this. And what you start to realize at this moment, again, is what I said earlier. Paul hasn't actually been defending himself this whole time. This was all about this moment. Everything that he has said, everything that he has shared is about this moment. It's about appealing to the heart of King Agrippa and everyone else who is listening and calling them to faith, calling them to trust in Jesus and be saved. And by the way, think about the love that Paul had in his heart that that was what he was trying to do right he's speaking to the romans and to the jewish authorities who have wronged him who have not given him anything close to real justice they're the reason why he had been locked up for more than two years now in caesarea and yet he doesn't want them to be condemned he wants them to be saved and the last message he gets before he gets on a boat, a boat to go to Rome is he appeals to their heart and calls them to trust in Jesus and be saved because that's what he wants for them. May we have the same heart. And in verse 27, he says to Agrippa, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe the prophets. And he's appealing to this man who knew the Old Testament scriptures, and he's saying to him, I know you believe what they said. What they said has been fulfilled you know, ultimately what Paul was doing is he is calling for a response. And you know, it's a lot easier to never do that. I just want to be honest with you. It's a lot easier when you're telling someone about Jesus to just kind of share and just leave it there. And it's it's harder, right? It becomes a little bit more uncomfortable when you actually press for a verdict, when you actually press for a decision. But the reality is that eventually we do need to do that. Eventually we do need to ask for a response because the message of Jesus is not just good information. The message of Jesus is not just an interesting story. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, according to Jesus. And so what that means is eternal life, heaven and hell, literally hang in the balance based on whether or not someone accepts or rejects the message of Jesus. And so in the end, our goal is not to share information. Our goal is not education. Our goal is transformation. In the end, our goal was not just a conversation, but it's a conversion. Our goal was not just to share a story, it's to see a salvation take place. Now, of course, we know, none of us have the power to save another person. Only God can do that. The God who saved us is the only one who can save somebody else, but we need to call for a response. We need to invite them to respond in faith to Jesus. And in just a few minutes, friend, if you're here and you haven't yet responded and met the Lord in a personal way, I want to give you that opportunity. I want to invite you today to respond to that message of Jesus and put your faith and your trust in him. Well, the response Paul gets from King Agrippa isn't much better. It isn't a yes. It's actually more like a you've got to be kidding me. Now, I know the translation I read from said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I really believe the better translation of the Greek text here is what we read in the NIV or in a number of other English translations that you might have in front of you. Agrippa was really saying something like this. Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time, you can persuade me to become a Christian? In other words, he's incredulous. He's saying, you don't really think that by just sharing what you just shared right there, I'm going to become a Christian. I really think that Herod Agrippa was really put in a dilemma by Paul's question. Because when he said, do you believe the prophets? He couldn't say as a Jewish king, no, I don't believe the prophets. But he also didn't want to say, well, yeah, I believe the prophets. Because if he said that, he knew Paul was going to keep pressing him. Well, then why do you not believe in Jesus? He's the fulfillment of everything they wrote. So he just wanted to get out of the conversation. Have you ever been talking with somebody and you can tell they just want to get out of the conversation? That's what he wanted to do. And so as one person put it, kind of with a smile, he just said, do you really think in such a short time you're gonna make me a Christian? And he just pushed everything that Paul said to the side. But I love Paul's response because he's not deterred. In fact, he picks up on the wording that Agrippa uses about a short time. This is what he says in verse 29. Again, the NIV, I think, has the meaning. Paul replied, short time or long. Whether it's a short time, whether it's a long time, I don't care. I just pray to God that not only you, But everyone else who is listening to me may become what I am, except for these chains. This is Paul's heart for Agrippa and everyone else in the room. He didn't want them to be in prison like he was. That's why he said, except for these chains. But he did want them to know Jesus like he did. And you know what? That's my heart this morning too. That's my heart for each and every one of you. I want you to know Jesus like I do. I want you to know what it's like to be forgiven. I want you to know what it's like to know that you're a son or a daughter of the king. I want you to know what it's like to know that you have freedom. I want you to know what it's like to know that you have a purpose in life that was given to you by the God who created you and put you on this planet, a God who wants you to live with him forever and ever. That's what I want for every single one of you who are here today. I know that Paul was called crazy for believing in Jesus. Listen, Paul was not crazy. Paul's message was not crazy. Paul was the sanest person in the room. You know what's crazy is what King Agrippa did. What's what's crazy is to hear the good news of Jesus that Paul shared with him and to reject it to push it to the side, to just say something to get out of the conversation, to, to put it off, to, to not want to act on it because maybe you're afraid of what other people might think of you or say about you. Is it really going to matter what other people think about you on that day of judgment when you're standing before God? It's not going to matter. No, no, that that is what is is crazy. As one person put it, if King Agrippa never came to trust in Jesus, of course we don't know, but if he never came to trust in Jesus, he will have all eternity in hell to think about how crazy it was that he did not believe in the message of Jesus that Paul preached to him that day. And I pray there would not be a single person in this room who would make that same tragic mistake that Herod Agrippa II made. Friend, God loves you and he loves me like crazy. And he loves you so much, the Bible said he sent his one and only son Jesus to pay for your sin and mine at the cross. That's how much he loves you. We're we're crazy, listen, this is the truth today. We're crazy to not say yes to a God who loves us like crazy. And I wanna invite you to say yes to him right now. I wanna ask you to stand with me if you would. Maybe you're here today and, and God has been speaking to your heart. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you need that forgiveness that only Christ can give and you don't want to put it off for another day. I want to invite you to come. We're going to sing a song as soon as we start singing. If you know this is the day I need to say yes to Jesus, I want to ask you just to simply walk up here. Say uh, to me, pastor, I just, I want to say yes to him right now. There'll be other pastors you can come to as well at the head of each one of these aisles. Maybe you don't want to come alone. Ask somebody next to you say, will you come up with me? Don't let anything stop you. Don't let what anybody thinks of you stop you from saying yes to the love that God has for you in Christ. The forgiveness of sins that he's holding out, he's offering to every single one of us. You come right now as we sing together.